Christmas is coming. I don't have to tell you that, right? Christmas is coming. And that means millions and millions of people around the world will celebrate Christ's birth. People of every color, on every continent, in almost every nation of the world will celebrate Christmas in just a few weeks' time. Christmas as we know it, uh, that is the, the, the customs that we've come to associate with Christmas, come from a wide variety of different nations. Uh, Boniface, who was a missionary to Germany in the 8th century, uh, invented the Advent wreath. Uh, another German, Martin Luther, in the 16th century, is reported to have been the first to light Christmas trees. It seemed like a really dangerous thing to put candles on a fir tree, but that's what Luther did. Uh, an Italian, St. Francis, invented the nativity scene. Uh, the British gave us Christmas cards and Twelfth Night parties and, uh, of course, lots of great Christmas carols. Uh, the Dutch transformed the historic St. Nicholas. You realize St. Nicholas was a historic person. He was a fourth century bishop uh, from Turkey. The Dutch transformed him into the legendary Santa Claus that we all know and love. The Scandinavians gave us mistletoe. And on and on we could go. Christmas is truly an international celebration. It brings together Christians from across the globe and across the centuries to celebrate the birth of Jesus into the world. And that's fitting because Romans 15 shows us Christ came into the world for two reasons. Unity and mission. What we might call global gospel unity and global gospel mission. When we think of Christmas, we think of the presents and the parties and all those kinds of things. But this is right at the center of it. This is the foundation of it all. Unity and mission. See, Christmas is a celebration of Christ's birth. We're celebrating the birth of God's son into the world, the coming of the God-man into history. But it's not enough to understand that he came. We have to understand why he came. And of course, people will say, well, you know, remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's exactly right. But it's not enough to say he's the reason for the season unless we understand the reason why Jesus came. And you can really boil it down to these two things, unity and mission. And so as Paul brings his letter to the Romans to a close, these are the two things that he focuses on. Gospel unity within the church and global mission through the church. Those are really the two themes of this great chapter, Romans 15. He focuses on these two things because they really sum up why Christ came into the world. They sum up what the gospel means for us. Indeed, for Paul, we might say that the gospel simply is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good news because of who he is and what he's done. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to unite his people to create a new humanity, you could say, composed of Jew and Gentile, a global, multiracial, international family of believers who put their hope in him. He creates that unity. And further, we can say Jesus came on a mission. 
Jesus came on a mission to the world, a mission to the nations, to bring the nations into his kingdom, to secure the redemption of the nations. He came to disciple the nations, to save and transform the nations, to bring all nations to the obedience of faith. And of course, he carries on that mission. He carries forward that mission now through his church. So you've got these two themes, gospel unity in the church and gospel mission through the church. And I'm going to show you how those two themes are really twined together in Romans 15. Uh, so let's start with unity. In verse 1, Paul gives the basic principle of Christian unity and Christian community. He says, we who are strong are to bear with the failings of the weak and so not please ourselves. This is what produces unity in the church. If you think about it, there are plenty of potential divisions in the church. We've seen these play out, of course, in our own lives and throughout history. Plenty of ways the church could potentially be divided. Here's one of them. Paul is addressing the strong and the weak, two groups within the church that could potentially fight with each other You've got the strong who grasp their freedom in Christ, and you have the weak who don't. But Paul wants them united because they're all believers in Jesus. They all believe in Jesus, the strong and the weak. And so Paul wants them united. Differences in what we might call secondary matters should not create division among faithful believers. Likewise, Paul shows us in this chapter that Christians from different ethnic backgrounds should not be divided. Christians from different ethnic backgrounds, there's certainly potential for division there. That's another potential fault line within the church. And in particular, in the first century, that fault line was between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And you see throughout the New Testament how much they struggled to get along, how much they struggled to meld together into one new family. But Paul here insists on their unity. As he says in verse 5, he wants them to live in harmony with one another. And so he shows in this chapter, as he does in so many other places, how God's plan includes integrating Jew and Gentile into one body. Did you see that in verse 8, that Jesus came to unite Jew and Gentile? And so ethnic divisions ought to be overcome in the life of the church. In Christ, we are all brothers. We become one big family. And that racial unity that the world talks about so much and that people in the world say they want, that can really only be found in the church, in this new humanity that Jesus is creating out of every nation, out of every ethnic group. Another potential division in the church that Paul deals with here and, and that Paul shows how the gospel heals, how, how the gospel heals this division. Another potential division is economic. It's what you might call class warfare. It's the kind of thing Marxists talk about all the time, the rich versus the poor. You know, there's this divide between rich and poor. In the world, rich and poor often are at odds with one another. Very often you find the rich exploiting the poor and you find the poor envying the rich. But Paul shows in this chapter that rich and poor should be united. And so Paul drives home the unity of rich and poor, especially at the end of this chapter in verses 25 to 28, as he describes how there is a sharing of social and spiritual goods in the church. And this really overlaps with the ethnic 
unity that's to be found in the church as well. But what he talks about at the end of the chapter is how the Jewish saints in Jerusalem are suffering, and he's taken up a collection for them, and this collection has been gathered from Gentile saints in Macedonia and Achaia. So he's going to take this Gentile gift, this gift from Gentile Christians, and deliver it to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so you've got the economically rich Gentile Christians sharing with the economically poor Jewish Christians, just as the spiritually rich Jewish Christians have shared with the spiritually poor Gentile Christians. Can you see that? See how all that maps out? The collection that Paul's going to deliver in Jerusalem ties together different ethnic groups and different socioeconomic groups in the church. And so the collection really becomes a a form of communion, a form of koinonia. Meeting one another's needs in the church is an aspect of our fellowship, an aspect of our unity in the church. The reality is Christians can divide over many things. Christians can divide from many different things. We can divide because we're being overly critical. We can judge one another in self-righteous ways. We can love ourselves instead of loving our fellow church members. We can uh, put ourselves first. We can be selfish. We can be unkind. We can have unhelpful and unnecessary theological fights. All kinds of ways Christians can divide from one another. What is the key to unity in the church? The, the, The unity that Jesus came into this world to create Again, it's found there in verse 1. We cannot live to please ourselves. When we please ourselves, it inevitably breeds division. Instead, Paul goes on to say here, we ought to be like Jesus who did not please himself, but who instead served others. Indeed, who was willing to suffer for others. And Paul goes on and quotes Psalm 69 and applies it to Jesus, he puts the words of Psalm 69 on the lips of Jesus, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And this is Paul's way of showing what Jesus has come to do. Jesus was willing to suffer loss for the sake of his brothers. In fact, he was willing not only to be insulted, he was willing to be tortured and ultimately crucified for the sake of of others. And so Paul's demonstrating here in order to maintain unity in the church, the kind of unity that Jesus came to create, we have to make sacrifices. Just as Jesus sacrificed for us, we have to replicate that in our lives. We have to be willing to make sacrifices for one another. Gospel unity requires Christ-like love and sacrifice for one another. Paul says that is the key ingredient in building this unity. Paul sees the unity that the gospel aims to create as coming to expression, especially in the church's worship. I find this so interesting, that the unity that the gospel creates especially comes to expression in the church's worship. The whole point of this unity is that all of us as believers would together worship God. That's what he says in verse 6, that we would, with one mind and with one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind and one mouth. That's what Christian unity looks like. One mind and one mouth. That should characterize the life and the worship of the church. One mind, I think that's pointing us to theological unity. Unity in our theological convictions. We should strive for like-mindedness so we believe the same truth. 
and one mouth. That's liturgical unity. That's unity expressed in our prayer and in our praise. That's unity expressed when we sing together and when we pray together. And Paul's saying, Jesus came for this very purpose. He was born into the world to bring about this joyful, loving unity. In fact, you even see it at Jesus' birth. Think about who comes to see Jesus, to worship him the very night he's born. You've got the Jewish shepherds and you've got the Gentile magi who come together to worship him in the manger. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do and the very kind of thing Paul is talking about here. See, when we as a church practice this unity, we embody God's plan and we bring God glory. We become the embodiment of what Jesus came to accomplish when we are of one mind and of one mouth. Well, there are other signs of unity in this passage. This unity gets expressed in how we relate to one another, you could say, just in our daily lives. In verse 7, he says, we must receive one another even as Christ has received us. Well, how does Christ receive us? Christ receives us by faith alone. We trust in him, and when we trust in him, we are accepted into his family. He welcomes us in. That is the great truth of justification by faith alone that Paul has developed so carefully earlier in this letter. Justification by faith alone. That we are welcomed into God's family by faith. But now Paul is showing he wants justification by faith to turn into fellowship by faith. He wants justification by faith to give rise to fellowship by faith. And so we are to receive one another just as Christ has received us. Our welcome of one another should picture how he has welcomed us. He's welcomed us into his family and he loves us and he takes care of us and we ought to be doing that with one another, welcoming one another into our lives, into our hearts, loving one another, caring for one another. Next, Paul says that this unity in the church is expressed in how we encourage one another or exhort one another or counsel one another. Look at verse 14. He says, I am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Paul wants us to admonish one another. And actually this too, I think, is a sign of the unity that we share. That word for admonish there could also be translated as counsel. I want you to counsel one another. In the church, we counsel one another. Well, what does that mean? How do we admonish or counsel one another in this way? What's Paul talking about? Well, in the church, we are to share God's truth with one another. We're to check one another's blind spots. We're to help one another along the pathway to Christian maturity. We are fellow travelers together in this journey of the Christian life. We're to help one another along the way. We're especially to help one another see our sin and how to repent of it. That's how we counsel or admonish one another. Even the simplest Christian has insight into the human heart that no secular psychiatrist or psychologist can see. This is how our good friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. Bonhoeffer says, the most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. 
The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. And that is exactly right. That is how we counsel one another according to the truth of the gospel. That we are sinners who can only be healed by God's forgiving and transforming work in our lives. Finally, with regard to unity, Paul ends the chapter with a call to prayer and with a blessing. I find this really, really interesting too. Paul, as you come to the end of this chapter, he asks the Roman Christians to pray for him, and he makes it clear, in this way, as they pray for Paul, they will be joining him in his struggle. That's what he says in verse 30. As you pray for me, you'll be joining me as I strive, as I struggle. Paul's going to face persecution in prayer, they can join with Paul and support him even as he faces persecution. They can support Paul in his work. And in this way, their fellowship will be deepened. You know this from your Christian experience. That nothing unites Christians more fully than prayer. If you really want to be close, if you really want to be tight with other Christians, praying for one another, praying with one another, will do that will bond you together as nothing else can. Prayer is a way for us to share our struggles and our burdens with one another and so grow closer to one another in Christ. Paul then closes this chapter with a blessing that they might experience God's peace. He says, now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That peace really is at the heart of Christian unity. Because we have peace with God, we can be at peace with one another. That word peace really sums up what Christian unity is all about. Paul wants the church to be a place of peace, where we are at peace with God and at peace with one another, a community of peace. So that's Paul's sketch of gospel unity in the church in Romans 15. Christ came into the world to create this unity to form a new humanity, a new kind of community. He came into the world to overcome the divisions and to unite a fractured human race in himself. That through faith in him, all different kinds of people, different economic levels, different ethnic backgrounds, all different kinds of people would be united together in him and would form this new family. But it's clear here, this unity and community is to spread through the nations. That's the only way this unity can really be realized, is if the gospel spreads through the nations. And that's really the other big theme that you see here in Romans 15. Gospel mission through the church to the world. Paul here in this chapter describes his own mission... And in a way, his mission is ours. There are differences, certainly, because he was an apostle. He had a unique role in history. But Paul is concerned with the mission of the whole church. As an apostle, he's got a special role to play in that mission. But it's a mission that belongs to the whole church. Paul makes it clear here that the church's mission flows out of Christ's mission. 
Indeed, really, it can be thought of as building upon Christ's mission. It can be thought of as a continuation and extension of Christ's mission. It's built upon the foundation of Christ's mission. Really, the very word Christmas tells us this. Have you thought about this before? You know what the word Christmas actually means, how we got that word? The Christ part of the word Christmas is obvious, right? That refers to Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one. Uh, so obviously it refers to Jesus as the God-man, the word made flesh, the one who's been anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit. That's the Christ part. But what about the Mass part? Where do we get that? Well, it comes from a Latin word, Latin word Mass. You, you know, you've, you've heard... Uh, I'm sure Roman Catholics, you know, whereas we Protestants might talk about going to church, Roman Catholics will talk about going to Mass. Okay, some Protestants do use that word, actually, but it's really a Roman Catholic thing. That word Mass comes from the closing words of the service in Latin. Ite missa est is the Latin. It means you are dismissed or you are sent. That's how the liturgy ends. In, in the Latin liturgy, that's how it ends, with this sending out. You're sent out. Okay, that word missa or mass means sent. Think about some English words that we get from that Latin term. Words like missile. Okay, missile is launched out. A missile is sent. Or dismissal, where you're sent out from a place. Or, of course, that word mission. That word Christmas. The word Christmas literally means the sending of the Christ. Or you could even say the mission of the Christ. It is Christ's mass, the mass of the Christ, the mission of the Christ, the sending of the Christ. That's really what we're celebrating at Christmas, the mission of God's anointed one, the Father sending the Son, the Christ, into the world. That's what Christmas celebrates. But precisely because Christ has a mission, his church has a mission as well. Christmas, you could say, leads to churchmas. The, the mission of the Christ leads to the mission of the church. The sending of the Christ leads to the sending of the church. And Jesus says this very explicitly in John 20. He says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He's saying, as I have had a mission, so you have a mission as well. I was sent on a mission, you're being sent on a mission as well. See, what is the church's mission? The church has been launched out to further Christ's mission in the world. Jesus Christ suffered and died for the sins of the world. Then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And now on that foundation, on that basis, the church is to go out and implement the effects of that, the result of that. We're to go... We're to go put into practice the effects of Christ's death and resurrection. That is our mission. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, the great Baptist pastor, once said, every Christian is a missionary, and that is exactly right. We are on a mission from God in Christ Jesus. We have a mission. And in Romans 15, you see the full scope of that mission, and you also see the promised success of that mission. Paul shows here that the church's mission is not only grounded in Christ's mission, that much is obvious, it's also grounded in the scriptures. It's grounded in God's promises. What supports and, and undergirds this mission that we've been given? The promises of God in scripture. 
And so starting in verse 4, Paul says, for whatever was written in former days, so that's obviously the Old Testament, whatever written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Why do we have the Old Testament scriptures? Why has God preserved the Old Testament scriptures for us? Why can we not just jettison them and do away with them and just focus on the New Testament? Those scriptures were written that we might have endurance and encouragement. Endurance and encouragement in the Christian life and in Christian mission come from the scriptures and especially from the Old Testament. It comes from knowing the word. It comes from knowing the word of God, the scriptures. And all of this, Paul says, is to give us hope. And so I would say, if Christians are ever lacking in endurance or in courage or in hope, it is almost always because they are biblically illiterate. When Christians are lacking in endurance or courage or hope, it's because we don't know the Bible. We don't know the promises of Scripture as well as we should. If we want to have endurance, if we want to have courage, if we want to have hope, we've got to saturate ourselves in the Scriptures that God has given to us. God has given us the Scriptures for this very purpose, to instill in us the will to endure, to encourage us, that is to put courage in our hearts and to give us hope. Indeed, it's really hope that Paul goes on to focus on here in this passage. What is this hope? This hope is the sure expectation that God will fulfill the promises he made to the patriarchs. That is the hope in view. The sure expectation that God will fulfill the promises he has made to the patriarchs. And actually, Paul goes on and he gives us of, of, of the many dozens and dozens of, of passages he could have chosen here, he picks out four. Four passages from the Old Testament that outline this hope, that sketch out what this hope looks like. The passages quoted here in verses 9 through 12 come from 2 Samuel and from the Psalms and from Deuteronomy and from Isaiah. And it'd be interesting to look at each one in detail, but let me just summarize them for you. Each of these passages promises blessing to the Gentile nations and shows that Gentile nations will come to praise the Lord. You could say the Old Testament is pregnant with hope for the missional success of the new covenant. The Old Testament scriptures are pregnant with hope for the success of the church's mission. And then Paul goes on to give a solid confirmation of this hope in verse 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. See, Paul connects hope to peace and joy. And then did you notice how many times he mentioned hope there? He's just piling hope on top of hope. You know, it's the God of hope filling you with hope that you might abound in hope. And this is because it is hope more than anything else that orients the mission. The mission is always future-oriented. What do we expect and hope to see happen in the world? That's what drives forward the mission. It's hope that sustains the mission. The God of hope fills us with hope so we can abound in hope, specifically with regard to what God will do in and for the nations. 
And indeed, Paul himself illustrates what this hope looks like in action. If you have this hope, how will you act? Will you do the kind of things that Paul does? He goes on to describe how this hope has driven him forward in his own ministry. He goes on to describe that in some detail here. His mission is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's a Jew, but his mission is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, he sees his missionary work as priestly work. In verse 15, he says, I am a priest of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Every priest has to have an offering He has to make some kind of offering to God. Paul sees his Gentile converts as his offering to God. He offers his Gentile converts to God for the glory of God. His goal is, as he says, to make the nations obedient to God, to disciple the nations. You need to understand this, the the scope of how Paul understood his mission. The goal is not just changed lives but changed cultures, changed nations, indeed a changed world. If you had to sum up this hope that Paul has as he carries out this mission, what is it? Paul wants to change the world. Paul wants to Christianize the world. He wants to Christianize the nations. That's why in the book of Acts he's so eager to go before Caesar, even if it's in chains, because he wants to preach the gospel to Caesar, to the highest earthly powers. That's what Paul wants Christ to accomplish through him. It's not about what Paul's going to do on his own. He even speaks of what Christ will accomplish through him. But again, understand the scope of this. Paul does not just want a handful of people to have a conversion experience. He wants people to become faithful and fruitful disciples. And he wants so many disciples that you can say, this is a discipled nation. In chapter 1, as he opens the letter. He says he has been made an apostle. An apostle is a sent one, one who's sent on a mission. He's been made an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. That is his goal. That is his mission, to make the nations obedient and faithful to Jesus. And Paul tells us here in Romans 15 that he uses both words and deeds to carry out his ministry. Look at verse 18. It's not just that he's speaking, but it's also his way of living that demonstrates the gospel. Now in verse 19, he says these deeds include signs and wonders. As an apostle, Paul could perform miracles that would authenticate his message. Now I think there's a lot there that is unique to Paul as an apostle, living still in the apostolic era. Uh, since the apostles were the ones who wrote the New Testament scriptures and who, you could say, laid the foundation for the church. That's how Ephesians 2 describes it, these uh, apostles and the prophets who also uh, wrote inspired scripture, laid the foundation for the church with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is the last of the apostles. So we don't necessarily expect that kind of thing today. In the post-apostolic church, we generally cannot confirm our message with miracles. I'm not saying God doesn't do miracles. I'm just saying we can't perform them the way the apostles did. But we can confirm our message in another way. We might not be able to confirm it with miraculous signs and wonders, but we can confirm our message with a lifestyle of obedient 
faithfulness, a lifestyle of sacrificial love, which, let's face it, in this fallen world is a miracle of another sort in itself. Understand, the mission is not just what you say, it's also what you do. It's not just proclaiming the gospel, it's living out the implications of the gospel in every part of your life. That's the mission. That's the breadth of the mission. In that sense, virtually everything God has called you to do can become part of of the mission. And it means that while, yes, God will call some to go to foreign lands to preach the gospel, it also means you can be a missionary right where you are. I hate to break it to you, but you do not live in a fully discipled nation. There is plenty of work to do right here where we are. Now, with Paul here in Romans 15, we see as an apostle, he has this desire to take the gospel into regions where it has not yet been preached. He wants to be a pioneer, an apostolic pioneer, a missionary pioneer. He wants to lay a foundation in new places, not building upon someone else's foundation, but taking the gospel even to faraway coastlands, to places where the gospel has not yet been proclaimed. And so he goes on to share with the Romans his travel plans. And and we get some insight here into uh, how Paul carried out his mission. As he journeyed, he would go into cities and he would preach the gospel. And as he began to make converts, he would form them into a church. So he would plant a church there. And then he would move on to the next city. And he would expect the, the churches that he has planted in that city to evangelize the rest of the surrounding area. It was a very smart strategy for his day, a very efficient strategy for his day. But you have to remember what drives all of this, what was driving Paul in his mission, and what must drive us in our mission is hope. The scriptures were written that we might have hope. And how do the scriptures give us hope? The scriptures promise that the Gentiles will come to hope in the Messiah. That's actually what what Paul quotes in uh, from Isaiah in Romans 15, 12. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Our hope is that the nations will come to hope in him. See, God is a God of hope, and he fills us to overflowing with hope. Now, we've all heard that saying, right? Hope is not a strategy. You've heard that, right? Hope is not a strategy. And, and, and the reason that that saying resonates with a lot of people is because a lot of times in our experience, hope is really just wishful thinking. And it really doesn't make any difference in our lives. You know, I hope I get a raise. I hope I get a new car. You know, I hope my team wins the game. And we know a lot of times those kinds of hopes don't come to pass. They really just amount to nothing more than wishful thinking. And those kind of hopes don't really accomplish anything in the world. Paul here is talking about a different kind of hope. A hope that is sure and certain in its future expectation. It's a hope that is rooted in Christ and in the scriptures. And this kind of hope most certainly is a strategy. In fact, it is the only strategy there is. The problem is we live in a hopeless world. We live in a world that is full of pessimism, and despair, and darkness. We live in a hopeless culture. This was true before COVID hit, but I think COVID has done even more to expose people's fearfulness, and pessimism, and despair, their hopelessness. But what's sad is, I think we've seen how many in the church share in this general pessimism of the culture. 
A lot of Christians share in this general pessimism. They don't expect to grow very much in their Christian life. They don't expect the church to have very much success in her mission. In fact, in many cases, they expect just the opposite. They expect things to get worse and worse. I've even known, and perhaps you have too, Christians who believe that it is actually good for things to get worse because it means Jesus is coming back soon. You need to understand that idea, that logic, that things getting worse is good because it means Jesus is coming back soon. That is absolutely 100% false. It's an idea that comes from outside of the Bible, really a totally modern idea, not believed by the historic church. Nothing in scripture tells us things getting worse is a sign of Jesus' final coming about to happen. I actually think uh, people who, are, who embrace this, I actually think that that kind of hopelessness about the mission is really a sign of lazy Christians who do not want to have to work, who do not want to suffer, and who are looking for some kind of escape hatch to get away from the responsibilities God has given them. Instead of the Great Commission, they want the Great Escape. But this has been something, and especially for the last couple centuries, has been all too common in the church. And you can see how such an idea like this, that things getting worse, is actually good because it means Jesus is coming back soon. This would be a very useful idea for Satan in getting Christians to minimize their efforts in growing God's church and applying his truth to all of life. Here's an example from, uh, from a 19th century American pastor. He said, the imminent return of Christ totally forbids all working for earthly objects distant in time. Don't bother planning ahead, thinking long term. Because there's not a long term future there. Or here is another, this is a 20th century uh, American Bible teacher. We should be living like persons who don't expect to be around much longer. God did not send me to clean the fishbowl, he sent me to fish. That's the great escape instead of the great commission. Okay? Jesus came into a dark world to bring light. He was born into the darkest time in history, in the darkest time of the year. He entered into the darkness. Why? In order to bring the light of his love into the world. He entered into the world in its darkness in order to bring hope into that dark world. That's why we light another candle each week of Advent. We start in darkness and we move to ever greater light because the light is getting brighter, not dimmer. Jesus came into a dark world to be the light who would drive the darkness away. Frankly, the world could not have gotten any darker or any worse than it was in the time of Jesus' birth. And we certainly should not think it would only get worse after Jesus comes into the world. Again, it was about as dark as it could possibly be. Jesus came to bring light. And I would say Jesus has done that. We sometimes don't appreciate all the ways Jesus has already transformed the world over the last 2,000 years. The honest truth is the world has gotten immeasurably better over the last 2,000 years as the gospel has spread. And that will only continue no matter what setbacks we face along the way. You need to understand in the face of all the hopelessness that surrounds us, the Christian faith is hopeful. Hopeful that the unity Christ wants in his church can be realized. Hopeful that the mission given to the church to disciple the nations can be fulfilled. 
Again, no matter what setbacks or obstacles we face along the way, look again at those promises Paul cites in verses 9 through 12 from the Old Testament. That last quotation from Isaiah 11. What are we told? That the Messiah will rule the nations and in him the nations will hope. Now I ask you, will those promises come true or not? Will promises like that come true or not? Will the nations be brought to Christ? Will the nations come to hope in Christ or not? Our Advent and Christmas hymns certainly say they will. You know, the church's traditional hymnody for Advent and Christmas is deeply hopeful. It is world-defyingly hopeful. Think about that hymn, Joy to the World. It's based on Psalm 98, so it's really just paraphrasing scripture. But think about the words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nations... He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That is a hymn of hope. Do you believe the words you sing? Do you believe those words? Do you have that hope? Let me give you another example. Savior of the nations come. Great Advent song. The whole hymn is based on the idea that he is the Savior of the nations, which means the nations will be saved. Or take another one, Come Now Long Expected Jesus. In that hymn we sing, Hope of all the earth thou art. We're singing to Jesus, Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. We sing the song of Simeon this time of year from Luke 2. This is the Savior of the world, the Gentiles promised light. Is he the light of the Gentiles or not? Is he going to shine his light on the Gentile nations or not? The hymn, The People That in Darkness Sat, is basically a paraphrase of Isaiah 9. The whole thing is about this hope. How his government is going to increase and increase and and how his kingdom is all about bringing in the light that shines into and overcomes the darkness. The hymns of Advent and Christmas express this hope that the nations will be converted, discipled, and blessed. That's the mission of Christ. He's not going to fail. Christ is going to rule the nations in truth and justice. We need to believe the Christmas hymns year-round. Can I ask you to do that, to believe the Christmas hymns year-round? But you know, it's not just the Christmas hymns. I've actually snuck in a, a hymn that's not really a Christmas hymn that we'll sing in a few minutes for the offertory, the hymn, Jesus Shall Reign. And that whole hymn is about this hope. But you know... A lot of times the, the, the hymns that we have in our hymnals and even that we will sing, you don't get all the verses. And sometimes the lost verses are really the best verses. You'll know when we sang uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing this morning, we, uh, we, we found a version of it that's got all five verses because we wanted to sing that whole hymn. Well, Jesus Shall Reign actually has 14 verses. Now, we're not going to sing all of that. Maybe someday we will. <laughs> uh, it'd be really fun to sing it. But let me read to you the last couple of verses because we won't sing these this morning. But listen to the hope expressed here. The heathen lands that lie beneath the shades of overspreading death revive at his first dawning light, and deserts blossom at the sight. The saints shall flourish in his days, dressed in robes of joy and praise. Peace like a river from his throne shall flow to nations yet unknown. That is the Christian hope. That is the Christmas hope. That is the hope of 
the gospel, that the nations will come to hope in him. That is the Christian hope. See, that hymn, Jesus shall reign, that's just the hope in him form. These hymns make it so we can express this hope in harmony with one mind and one voice, as Paul talks about in Romans 15. This is the truth Romans 15 teaches, that you must drill down deep into your heart. Jesus has won. Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. Jesus will win. That is the hope and the promise of the gospel. And that's really, again, what that word Christmas means. It means Christ was sent on a mission, and he is going to succeed in that mission. And when you say Merry Christmas, as I know we all do this time of year, when you say Merry Christmas to somebody, you are really affirming your belief that Christ will succeed in his mission to the nations. What does Merry Christmas mean? It means be happy. This is what you're saying. You're saying be happy because Christ is fulfilling his mission to the nations. That's what Merry Christmas really means. I think sometimes secularists understand this better than Christians do. And that's why they hate those words Merry Christmas and want to drive them out of the public square. Because I think they probably understand better than we do what those words mean. That when Christians say Merry Christmas, that's not just a declaration of war against the world. That is a proclamation of victory over the world. That's what Merry Christmas really means. Rejoice, be merry, because Christ has won the victory. His mission is succeeding. See, hope most certainly is a strategy when it's hope in Christ. I'll tell you what's not a strategy. Pessimism. Pessimism never accomplishes anything useful. It makes us passive and fearful and anxious. And that describes our world. We live in a world full of chronic anxiety that none of our political leaders can figure out how to solve because they're actually part of the problem. We live in an era of despair and pessimism. And again, a lot of times, and we've seen this, a lot of times that anxiety and despair creep into the church. And you need to understand this. Anxiety underlies virtually all of your unchristian behaviors. Anxiety underlies virtually all of your sub-Christian behaviors. You're stuck in some kind of sin. There's a really good chance anxiety's got something to do with it. We are anxious and fearful. And this is why we do so many things contrary to God's will. When we're anxious and fearful, we do dumb things. We make bad decisions. One sin gives birth to a multitude of other sins. And it all stems from anxiety. But how can we be anxious when we have this hope? How can we be anxious when we know that Christ is our king, that Christ is king of kings and lord of lords? How can we be anxious when we know that the father has promised to his son the nations? How can we be anxious when we know that Jesus is the savior and ruler of the world? I know that language of Christian nationalism is getting thrown around a lot these days and I don't even know exactly what people mean by it. Uh, from what I've seen, it seems like people are using it mostly in a negative way. So I don't, I don't know about Christian nationalism. I won't go into that. But I can tell you this. God promises to make every nation on the face of the earth a Christian nation. That is what these prophecies Paul quotes are all about. That's, that's what they promise. 
that every nation on the face of the earth will hope in Christ as king, as savior. The Great Commission commands the church to produce Christian nations. Just as we're commanded to have Christian families and Christian everything else, nations are commanded to be Christian too. Oh, somebody might say, well, that's going to take a really, really long time to convert the nations. Yeah, well, guess what? Time is on our side, however long it takes. You know, in the old version of the Book of Common Prayer, it included a calendar to calculate the date of Easter out to 8400 A.D. Why would you need to do that? Well, this hope made them patient. This hope made them long-term thinkers and planners. One of the greatest Christian businessmen to ever live was Arthur Guinness. Go read the book, God and Guinness, to see this fabulous book. But when he founded the, the Guinness Brewing Company... In 1759, he negotiated terms for a 9,000-year lease on the four acres where he would build his brewery. Who thinks 9,000 years ahead? Well, I'll tell you who. It's people who have this kind of hope. See, that's how Christians thought when this hope was more vibrant in the church. And that's why Christians used to build the most glorious culture the world has ever known. It's why Christians would build cathedrals when those who started work on the cathedral knew they would not live to see it finished because it took generations to build a cathedral. But it did not matter because they knew this hope endures from one generation to the next. It's why Christians wrote music like Handel's Messiah to be performed for generations to come. Today, Christians hardly produce anything of lasting value. That has to change. The fact we don't produce anything of lasting value is a sign of a waning hope. It means we have lost this hope. Understand, Jesus did not come to attempt something, to attempt the salvation of the world, to give it the old college try, and maybe things will work out. No, he came to be the Savior of the nations. He came to reclaim his fallen creation, to make good on God's promises to Israel. And because Jesus' mission cannot fail, the church's mission cannot fail either. In fact, Paul shows us this right at the end of Romans in the next chapter. He says to the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We think of Jesus as the serpent crusher. He's the one who tramples the serpent, Satan, under his feet. Yes, but we do as well. We gain that victory over Satan as well. Christ came to conquer. He's going forth conquering and to conquer right now. All the idols of the nations will be toppled. All the nations of the world will be baptized and discipled. This is a gospel of victory. A gospel of joy and peace and triumph. It is the triumph of the light over the darkness, of truth over lies, of good over evil, of Christ over his rivals. It is a gospel of hope for the hopeless. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.